Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an indie record label. And I get an opportunity uh, every other week to interview somebody who has started a record label or has been running a record label for the past 20 years or past 10 years or two years. Uh, It's such an interesting um, opportunity for me because there's so many different types of labels, not just genre-wise, and, and, and we have some really interesting genres coming up in, in future episodes, but it, it also just in the in their philosophies and the why behind um, their labels and, and the how behind their labels and, and how they do things. And so today's episode is, is, is no different. Um, you know, we are talking with this incredible label from Scotland called Last Night from Glasgow, and, and I really encourage you to stick with this episode because there's some really interesting uh, operational, uh, um, uh, how do I say this? There's some really interesting ways that Ian runs this label um, from a finances uh, perspective when it comes to recoupables or the lack thereof. So it's very, very interesting. It was really eye-opening. I can't say that if I were to start my label today that I would follow this model. I don't know, um, but I love it. I love his passion. I love uh, the risk that he has taken with this label. And I hope you really benefit from this episode. Thank you for listening. Please go to our website, otherrecordlabels.com, where we have set up a bunch of resources for folks who are running a label and could use a little bit of extra help when it comes to marketing their releases, um, planning their album release campaigns. And of course, we have some new releases, um, sorry, some new resources for people who are thinking about starting a record label from scratch. So head to otherrecordlabels.com to get those free resources. Please subscribe to the show and enjoy this interview. Okay. Well, I think um, I'm just worried about our audience when it comes to the audio quality plus your accent. Um, so just just keep in mind that most of our listeners are Americans and they're going to have a hard time with your accent. <laughs> I, I will slow down and be precise. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, I'm so interested in Scotland. Um, I actually grew up in a small part of Canada that had like tons of uh, Scottish people and they had like Highland games every summer. And I, I I knew probably in my high school, there were probably four or five kids who played bagpipes. And I don't know, it's kind of funny to think about it now. I've I've only thought of that just in the last couple of minutes um, talking to you, but I remember how Scottish my neighborhood was. Well, the funny thing is I went to school and my secondary school probably had 1,400 kids in it and I can't think of any of them that played bagpipes. No way. That's funny. Yeah, well, it's not. It's it's, uh, it's what we would call in this country shortbread tin uh, culture. Okay. You know, people people look at Scotland and they think about bagpipes and whiskey and tartan. Right. But actually, that's just, that's like us thinking you're all mounted police. Yeah, yeah. Me sort of guzzling, yeah. <laughs> you know. Half that's true. But yeah. Lovers. yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not aware of my wife knowing anyone who's in the Canadian mounted police. That's right, same, it's yeah. A classic international example of what a country's like. Uh, I don't, I think most people in Scotland are not a fan of the bagpipe. <laughs> right, yeah, sure. No, that's fair. Um, they're quite it's, loud. Uh, it's not a wonderful instrument to listen to. You know, it's uh, that's strange though. I mean, there, and I guess it was. I, I don't know what it was about the culture of this area. It was called Glengarry, and it was. I, yep. I just wonder um, why. Like we're talking about, you know, like fourteen-year-old boys who would play soccer and play the bagpipes. It's strange that that here in Canada we would you know lift up this culture that doesn't even necessarily exist anymore back in Scotland it's no different to going to Chicago and them dyeing the river green and pretending they're Irish one day a year right. when the people in Dublin couldn't give a toss about it right. uh, I think when you export culture you cling on to the bits you can take with you yes. uh, what definitely happens is people go abroad from Scotland and they talk about all the things that you can't get from Scotland but actually when you're here no one really cares about it yeah no I, uh, I get that 
Yeah, no, it's very interesting. It's funny. You, so your wife's from Vancouver. What's interesting about that is I think like as the crow flies, uh, like Toronto is probably closer to Scotland than it is to Vancouver. Is. Yeah, I met my wife in Toronto. Uh, I didn't, as in, I didn't bump into her in Toronto. We had met whilst I lived in Glasgow and she lived in Vancouver, and we agreed to meet in the Middle Territory. Oh, wow. And it looked like the Middle <laughs> Territory was Toronto. Was <laughs> so there was me flying across an ocean and her flying across a country. Yeah, that's uh, a domestic we, flight. Yeah, we met up in Toronto as a piece of neutral ground between Vancouver and Glasgow. That's an expensive relationship. Well, it was, and then she moved here. So, right. you know, she's been here for 13 years now. So that was a long time ago. That's a pretty decent investment. T- c- yeah. Tell me about the label's name, Last Night from Glasgow. Okay, that means you don't immediately understand the label name. Uh, and that's no insult. People from Glasgow quite often don't immediately understand the label name. Okay, uh, It's not last night from Glasgow because we are a Glasgow-centric label, because mm-hmm. we're not. Right. It's last night from Glasgow because that, to me, is a lyric from one of the greatest pop songs ever written. Okay. And it's the only lyric I can think of which references Glasgow. Oh. And that song would be the wonderful Swedish ABBA and Super Trooper. (laughs) And the opening line to Super Trooper, if you've ever paid any attention to it, is I was sick and tired of everything when I called you last night from Glasgow. Oh my goodness! And you, and that you think that's one of the only pop songs referencing well, that name? Well, I think ABBA. Um, I'll be blunt. I think you take the Beatles out of the equation. There's not a better pop band in the history of music. Oh sure. A lot of folks don't like them. Uh, I think it's impossible to listen to their twenty or thirty singles and not think, my God. They could write a hook. Yeah. They could write a chorus. Yeah. And when we were starting the label, much as I am predominantly an indie kid and a kind of alternative music lover, there felt something really, you know, subversive about naming an indie label yeah. after a song that had From- been number one in the world in pretty much every country in yeah. the 80s. Right. Uh, but the funny thing is most people don't recognize no, it. Most uh, totally. people think... It's a reference about what we were doing last night in Glasgow. Yeah, exactly. And it's not. Yeah, no, that's right. It, it it is funny. I think that's it's so funny. It has this uh, underlying pop reference to it because you do you think of like, oh, what were these guys up to uh, at the pub last night? The, there is something kind of underground in India about it, but that's really funny. That's very very yes, uh, brave I, I, of you. When we stumbled upon it. At the very outset, and at the point I decided to run a record label or set up a label, it was the name I wanted for it. And it took quite a lot of cajoling with the people that I started the company with (laughs) to have them accept it, because all they could see was ABBA. And they didn't want us being affiliated to ABBA. And I was standing on the other side saying, I definitely want us affiliated to ABBA. <laughs> they wrote Dancing Queen for Christ's sake. Of yeah. course we want to be affiliated with ABBA. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. But that's that. That's where it comes from. Uh, no, that is... And and how often does somebody immediately get the reference? You must be thrilled. Rarely. Uh, I've had a few people get it immediately. I've written... I've done interviews or I've been on the radio and I've mentioned it and I've had 10 or 20 people email me the equivalent of them smacking themselves in the head <laughs> and having a moment of realisation thinking, how did I miss this? Yeah. Uh, I guess part of the, the, the issue is that most people who listen to ABBA probably don't even know what the line is. Right. In this country... There are thousands of people who think the line is when I called you last night from Tesco. Tesco is a supermarket in Britain. And people actually think it's Tesco, not Glasgow. Right. Uh, Was it true at the time that that ABBA, like, that they didn't necessarily speak English? Oh, no, no. They spoke fluent English. Oh, okay. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the the two songwriters, Benny and Bjorn, were fluent. I mean, they couldn't have not been. Oh, because okay. I think I think you listen to ABBA's lyrics they don't sound like a band 
writing in a foreign language. You're, you're right. They sound you're like right. a band singing in a foreign language, definitely, but I don't think they sound like a band writing in a foreign language. There's too great a grasp of English language and there's yeah. too much nuance in there yeah. for them not to be fluent in English. I must have... Um yeah, I'm. I don't know where I heard that. Maybe I'm thinking of another band that that um, was performing songs that they didn't understand. I, I must have heard that wrong. Or well, let's not forget it was the two women that sang all the songs, so they may not have been as fluent as the two songwriters. I see. Mm. So it's very possible that they weren't great English speakers. I don't know, but certainly Benny and Bjorn were. Yeah, completely bilingual. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how many listeners we still have listening, but if there are still people who are, who aren't ABBA, who are ABBA fans that have hung on, um, can you let's tell me about the starting of the label? It doesn't go back that far, right? Is it is 2016? Is that correct? Correct. The label uh, was founded in 2016. Uh, that was probably two, maybe three months after I had the initial idea to do it. Hmm. And I think the initial idea to set up the label came after six or seven months of me unwittingly wanting to do something but not quite knowing what it was I wanted to do. I'll very briefly take you back to Scottish politics for a second. Sure. In 2014, we had the chance to vote for independence and pull ourselves out of the UK. And for reasons that I will never entirely understand, my countrymen did not vote to do so. Hmm. And that left a great many of us feeling dejected, deflated. A sense of socialist hope had bloomed in Scotland in the referendum. And when we failed to get independence, I think a great many of us felt that we'd missed an opportunity to make life better for people who were less fortunate than us. Hmm. That regret and resentment sat quite palpably with me for a good 12, 18 months. And then I guess one night I decided I was going to do something. I wanted just to do something that would help someone. And being a huge music lover, I stumbled upon the idea of trying to set up, for all intents and purposes, a cooperative non-profit record label. How could we start a business that essentially poured the idea of those with helping those without. Mm. How could we do this? How could we make it function? Uh, and between, I guess, October 15 and January 16, I spent a bit of time talking to musicians I knew, artists I knew, bands I knew, saying to them, I'm thinking of doing this. Here's my idea. What's right about it? What's wrong about it? What would you want from a record label? And by the time we got to January 16, I had this idea of essentially setting up a modern day patronage. Hmm. a label where you would invest in the running of the label as a patron, you would be rewarded with the output of the label, so you would get everything that label produced, very much like a Kickstarter campaign would operate, but more than that, the proceeds that were generated by the label would all be spent on artists, on manufacture, on production, on distribution, so essentially, we would be non-profit, we wouldn't take salaries, we would not draw benefits, we would just commit our time. The patrons would essentially be buying all of our releases in advance, mm. so they would be getting them at significantly discounted prices, but the artists who were signed to the label would never be asked to put their hand in their pocket to pay for the mm. manufacture, promotion, distribution or plugging of their music so as an artist if you were to sign to last night from glasgow we could spend three or four thousand pounds or six to eight thousand canadian dollars making a record for you if that record only sells one copy you would still be paid for that one copy you sold even though to the business it had cost us six to eight grand hmm. and that was the idea and we started very small scale in 2016 hoping to release 
two seven-inch singles and two LPs over the course of a year in return for patrons giving us basically a hundred Canadian dollars. Wow. Uh, we now take the equivalent of a hundred Canadian dollars off five hundred people. Oh my and we goodness! Give them seven to eight records a year. Wow! So we've gone from being fifty patrons to five hundred patrons. We've gone from making two or three records a year. Next year we'll manufacture fourteen LPs. Now. Not all of those will be manufactured by last night from Glasgow. We've got some offspring labels now that do different things that we can talk about yes, later. Yes. But we're going to next year have 14 different records in manufacture, which equates to one every three weeks. That's wow. a frankly ridiculous level of output for an independent record label. Yes. And, and that is like uh, approximately $100 a year for the. For the fan? Yeah. Well, you can join for as very little. You can join for 40 bucks a year and you'll get everything we release digitally. Sure. You also get membership of a forum and you get to be part of the team and you get to chat to bands. You can give us £66 a year, which is about 100 Canadian dollars. And next year that would get you seven LPs. It will get you... All of the music we release digitally, that's going to be about 40 singles mm. and another five or six records. It gets you the same uh, access to the forum, the same engagement with the artist. You mm. get to be part of a big worldwide team. And we've just in the last month signed our first Canadian artist. Oh, nice. So we would be saying to any Canadian members, when she plays live in Canada, you can see her for nothing, in the same way as we say to the Scottish members, any concerts we put on in Scotland, you can get into for free. To the English members, any gigs we put on in England, you can mm. get into free. So the membership also buys you free access to concerts, not that we're having any concerts these days. Right. So the... So you have, okay, so the membership fee that you get in a year, is that yep. equally divided between all of the people who release a record in that year? No, it's not quite how it works. What happens is we will pull in all of our patronage income. Mm -hmm. We will also get funding from arts bodies and we get funding from third parties. Mm -hmm. We have people who just donate money to the business. Wow. We... Well, then at the start of the year, look at what our roster plans are. So, for example, uh, if we were putting out the new album by Biss, which we're doing in December, we will look at what the demand for that record is likely to be outside of the 500 patrons we have. So we know that 500 copies are going to be given to the patrons, but how much demand is there to buy this from record shops? Okay. If we think there's a demand for a thousand units, then we would press fifteen hundred units of the Bis album. Hmm. If we felt the demand was two hundred and fifty units, then we'd press seven hundred and fifty units. So the money will be allocated based upon the production demands of that record. Hmm. We may in some cases decide to make multiple versions of a record. We may in some cases decide to make colour vinyl versions of a record. We may decide to do two different pressings. It will very much depend upon what we think the long-term reach of the record is. We do not want to... We want to saturate demand, but we do not want to exceed demand. There's no benefit in having yeah, yeah. 200 units sitting in a warehouse. It's sure. pointless. So no, we don't say we don't, for example, pull in forty thousand pounds and say to the ten artists in a year, you've each got four thousand pounds to spend. Yeah. What we say is we will cover the cost of manufacture, we will cover the cost of distribution, we will cover the cost of promotion, we will cover the cost of plugging, and we will give you, and it works out at eighty percent of the retail income. So the company retains 20% to cover costs of PayPal and mm. credit card fees and a sure. little bit of extra income going into the business. But if we sell one of your records for 30 Canadian dollars, you as an artist are going to earn $24 off that. That's unbelievable. 
Now, uh, that sounds... Okay, I love this, and I want to dive into this because I know that our community is very interested in this type of model, but I, I, the, the accounting of it is, is really hurting my head. And what happens to artists who... Um, or don't release a record. What happens to an artist who doesn't have anything new in a year? Because I well, do see that you you have some people who can get your their entire back catalog. Right? There's a certain membership level. Yeah, you can get. You won't get the entire back catalog. We have a couple of membership levels that let you get everything that is still available, oh, I see. and that's becoming scarcer and scarcer. <laughs> uh, Twice this year, I've had to actually go to Amazon to buy two records back off them <laughs> so I could fulfill such memberships because uh, we had none. But it's a basic, our job as a label is to ethically manage a family. And imagine that you're operating a family, you've got three kids, and kid number one's got to go to university. Well, you send kid number one to university, you don't hand kid number two the amount of money it's going to cost them to go to university yeah. at the same time. <laughs> you budget for kid number two coming. Yeah. So, for example, Sarah May, the young Vancouver artist we've just signed, is not going to release a record with us until probably 2022. Mm. Now, between now and 2022... We will be releasing digital music. That won't have any significant cost. She will still be promoted. She will still be plugged. She will still be presented to our audience. She'll still be included in mail shots and information. But we're not going to be spending any real money on her mm -hmm. until her album is complete and ready to be released. This year, we will release the second long player from Cloth, a band who have just been nominated for the Album of the Year Award in Scotland. Mm. But the last Cloth album came out in 2019. Now, in between 2019 and 2021, we're still looking after Cloth, we're still handling their catalogue, we're still administering sales, we're still promoting them, we're still arranging tours. But our job is to make sure that of the 36 and rising artists on our roster, nobody is ever left saying, I've been told I have to wait 18 months to do something I want to do tomorrow. Right. Now, most artists are going to want to release a record between once a year and once every three years. No one is realistically expecting to do a Guided by Voices and bring an album out every three and a half months, mm. as is their want. So our objective is just to make sure that everyone is looked after, every sale is administered, we have enough stock to satisfy back demand, and we have enough material moving forward to satisfy our output. So as I'm standing today... I could pull up a schedule list and I could tell you from today until the 30th of November next year, the date of every single release. And that includes singles that haven't yet been recorded. We've already slotted them in for a release point. Oh, wow. And you have to administer it that way. You can't... We're not a label who thinks, well, we'll release something when it takes our fancy. If you're a patron and we have said to you, you are going to get seven long-playing records this year from these seven bands, well, we've got to deliver that or we've got to deliver an alternative in the event something is delayed. Right. So we have forced ourselves into this ethical uh, production line. So bands will come to us saying we'd like to sign. A band like Dear Leader, for example, that we signed about eight months ago, we've said to them, this is how we're going to do it. We will release a single. Then three months later, we will release a single. Then a year later, we will pull together all your previous recordings as an introductory LP and we will release it in a small volume. And then in year two, once we've built your following, we will release your album. Hmm. No one can turn up to us and say, I'd like to bring my album out in three months' time without us saying, thanks very much. Please speak to someone else who isn't so busy. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I love that. And and that is the, you know, in order for something like this to work, I've always thought it has to, you really do have to plan ahead because you have members who, you know, have an expectation. So if you sign them up on a year that you have your act together and, and you have seven or eight releases to give them, but then you don't plan ahead and then one year comes and they only get one release, then everyone's going to cancel. So, I mean, I think being ahead of the game, that's so, so critical. Well, it's important that you be ahead of the game. It's also important that you present yourself properly. Now, yes, I'm not suggesting that what we're saying to patrons or potential patrons is give us 66 UK pounds sterling and we will give you seven long players. What we're saying to them is Give us £66 UK sterling. That's the equivalent of two nights out. Give us that. Yeah. We will take that and we will spend that on art. We will promote independent musicians. We will help them develop. Oh, and by the way, you'll get a bundle of records for free. <laughs> right, okay, that's we interesting. Yes. We have to appeal to the, the socialist patronage mentality here yes i'm not trying to get alternative dance fans to sign up to lnfg because we have an alternative dance catalog right i'm not trying to get shoegaze fans to sign up to lnfg because we've got a shoegaze catalog i am trying to get people who care about the arts to sign up to lnfg that's because we will protect the arts that and the is bonus interesting is you get lots of music. By presenting it that way, I think our patrons don't sit there going, well, I only loved two of the seven releases. I quite liked three of them, mm. and I wouldn't have bought two or three of them. Hopefully they're sitting there thinking, without my money, that band Cloth, who have just been nominated for winning the album of the year, they're in a short list of 10 yeah. for the best record of the last 12 months. That yeah. record would never have been made without my input. Yeah, And it's that that we're trying to appeal. We're trying to get away from the sense that we are a record club or a subscription label. Yeah, We're not. Right. We're, a, we're a political movement. We're a... <laughs> We're a body who want the industry to change. This That's genius we, because you're right. I think that when subscribers evaluate their investment at the end of the year, they, they think, you know what? I didn't really like many of the records. I only liked one and it's not worth $100 for one record. But they're not going to have that mentality at the end of the year they're going to think wow i just gave to a charity i feel good about myself and Correct. there happens to be some free records in the mail exactly that's and beautiful that's of, that is why we're so keen in the community it's why we're so keen on the the collaborative element of artists and fans getting together I don't know if you know about our isolation project that we... I read a little with. bit about it. Okay, so this is a great example of our community in operation. Uh, two or three days before we were told we couldn't leave our houses in Scotland, we had vision that this was going to happen. The press were saying it was going to happen. And we could see that venues and record shops in Glasgow were going to struggle to stay afloat. Right. So at 2.30 and in the afternoon, one Tuesday, we had a conversation within our team on a Facebook Messenger conversation. And between four of us, in half an hour, came up with the idea of recording a compilation album of all of our artists recording a cover version by one of our other artists. Uh -huh. The songs had to be recorded at home during lockdown, yeah. they would have to be mixed by a mixing engineer at home. They would have to be mastered by a mastering engineer at home. <laughs> and we would pay to release this record and every single penny that was generated by it, we would donate to venues or record shops that were struggling. Wow. We mentioned this at five o'clock the same day. By six o'clock the same day, we'd raised a thousand pounds. Wow. On, like, uh, this was an extra thing on top of the normal 
Yeah, the members right. couldn't get it for free, and they knew they couldn't get it for free, but they were being invited to buy it. Yeah. Now, in conjunction with this, we have a very famous Scottish photographer, a guy called Brian Sweeney, who has volunteered as our photographer from the get-go. Oh. Brian was out of work because he's in lockdown. He's a yeah. self-employed photographer. Brian was being told by the Scottish government he was still allowed to work if he could work safely, but no one was employing him to work. So we commissioned Brian to drive around Scotland, maintaining a social distance hmm. and taking pictures of our members in isolation. Oh, wow. So over the course of three months, Brian drove from the borders in Scotland to the north of Scotland and took photographs of families who were stuck at home. <sighs> what that meant for them was they got to have a conversation across the garden wall with someone they'd never met. Yeah. Brian got to work and be paid. Wow. But the community then got to sit and share their photographs with everyone. <sighs> so suddenly, people in Aberdeen were telling people in the borders what they thought of the photograph Brian had taken and it created a, a really tremendous sense of community between the artist, the photographer, and the community. We're now repressing the isolation sessions because every single one we made has sold. Wow. And giving those away to record shops to sell and to venues to sell so they can keep all the money. But included in that isolations project are some of the portraits. So the Patrons feel very much uh, like they're part of it. We had one of our patrons, a chap called Simon Stewart, write the liner notes for it. Hmm. And now Simon gets stopped in the street by people telling them how much they love his record label. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the key here. Every one of our patrons considers last night from Glasgow to belong to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't see it as, you know a subscription service which gets them a couple of audiophile records, they feel a possessiveness. Mm. And we're trying to cultivate that and not be precious about it. Uh, although people consider the business to be mine and me to be the leader of the business, it's incredibly important to me that every person who gives us a pound feels like it's theirs. Yeah, well, what a great bonding moment that the, the pandemic created for you. Yeah, it was tremendous. What, uh, so these, okay. So I love, I love the idea, and we've talked about this on the show with other people who do similar things. I think specialist subjects do something similar, and there's a few other labels that do have a uh, a membership arm uh, from their label. And I, I love the idea that 500 records um, are already paid for, are already pre pre bought. Um, you know, even by the time you sign a band, that's an incredible, so that gives you so much confidence um, and it gets you probably really great pricing at, at plants as well. So it's a record incredible. for us, now, uh, it probably costs us between five and six dollars to make a record. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, five or six dollars to make a record. We're not putting a twelve dollar surcharge of income onto that for us. Right. We're saying if it's five or six dollars wholesale, it's five or six dollars wholesale, that's the cost. Yeah. So when we sell records to record shops, those record shops are able to make a fifty percent markup. Right. So and, and, and the record is still cheap for customers. Well well they can sell it for twenty pounds but be making ten pounds off that. Yeah. And we want the record shops to benefit. We want our wholesale distributor proper who ship our records around the world for us to benefit. Mm -hmm. We want the bands to benefit. The only people we don't want to benefit are ourselves. Yeah, unbelievable. Now, that's, that's all lovely and Robin Hood-esque in its mentality. And it's not a model upon which the record industry can be saved. Mm-hmm. But at present, on our current subscriber patron level, it's the way it has to be. I would hope if we could grow the company fivefold, it could start paying salaries. Yeah. And I don't think anyone would object to no. people working 60 hours a week running a charitable trust 
that they not be paid for that. Yeah. But well, the real killer of this music industry, in my mind, are the businesses that factor in profits at the very outset. Oh, sure. If we had said we needed to make a 25% profit in year one, we'd have completely killed the whole idea dead. Yeah. We need to get to a size that we can scale such that it's possible to cover costs. And if we don't get to that size, we will forever not do so. Mm. But I was thinking the other day, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead a no, little bit. Okay. You might have this question planned. But at present, we have 500 patrons. If we were to get to 5,000 patrons, we would, by my reckoning, be able to pay every band that signed to LNFG £5,000 as a totally a total gift payment. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be an advance. It would be a congratulations for signing to LNFG. <laughs> Here's five thousand pounds. <laughs> you're going to get a lot of demo. Tr- you're going to get a lot of demo I- submissions, probably. Yeah, well, well, well <laughs> we already do. I got eighteen hundred last week. Oh my goodness! Eighteen hundred in one week. Yep. Oh man, I haven't got that in ten years. That's incredible. Yeah. That's overwhelming. It's ludicrous. Uh, and certainly 99% of it is unlistenable. Sure, sure. But you have to work out how much of it's unlistenable. But it was within those 1800 that we found Sarah from Vancouver. Oh, wow. One little pearl just jumped out and we nice. thought, she's great. Uh, that is usually the way with Canadians. I love, you know, I think that like a charity, the charities that I know, the the um, NGOs and and the nonprofit organizations in here in Canada, they employ um, tons of people, and they of they have to pay them and give them benefits like the the laws um, require. And so for somebody to make uh, $60,000, $70,000 a year and have a nine-to-five job at a charity is is totally not foreign. I have dozens of friends who work at charities. So I exactly. think, yeah, the idea of you, of you or, or employees, um, you know, making money, so to speak, uh, for your families, but still maintaining maintaining the not-for-profit it totally is is doable and appropriate but it, but it has to come at a time that it is not being put ahead i see of the function of the business well, good for you i mean that's if incredible someone, if someone working for cancer research was earning a hundred thousand dollars a year working as an admin manager but they were only raising fifty thousand dollars a year for cancer research yeah you'd basically be saying this is not a cancer research business this is a business that pays an admin manager yeah yeah our (laughs) projected turnover at year one was less than ten thousand dollars you know we can't draw salaries from ten thousand dollars we can't pay pluggers from $10,000. Now we're projecting turnovers of $250,000. So now it's not unreasonable to start paying for press and plugging and video work and hiring better studios and making the process better. Yeah. But what you have to do at the outset is prove you can make it work and you have to prioritize the art. Mm-hmm. This is the record industry. It's not the Daniel X subsidy fund, even though that's what it appears to be. Yeah. It shouldn't be about universal shareholders. It shouldn't be about making sure Beyonce Knowles can get a bigger yacht. Mm-hmm. It should be about making sure that artists with something to say get a leg up and an opportunity to do what they care about without being lumbered with debt and without being abandoned at the first sign of, or the first absence of failure, the first absence of success. Sure, yeah. You know, and and the other thing about this, I think a lot of people forget, and I think when you put money into the music economy, people seem to forget that even if the artist is is breaking even or having their um, manufacturing and promotion paid for, which is huge, there's still a lot of money that's going into, like you gave the example of the photographer, there's mix engineers who their full-time job is mix engineering and mastering. There's a lot of these music industry jobs that are often forgot of because they're not their, you know, the traditional artist on a stage. Um, but their um, livelihoods matter as well. And, and so I think it's incredible that a model like this helps those people as well. Well, of course it has to. So we, 
we at the start of last year uh, gave a chunk of cash to a local recording studio Hmm. and said to them, we would like to be buying studio time from you, but we'll give you all the money now so you know that studio time is booked. And over the course of the year, we will book bands in so they can record with you. But what they get is they get a guarantee of income. Yeah. So their sound engineer knows he's getting paid. Our bands can then go into the studio and get free recording. Uh, And from our perspective, at the bottom end of the spectrum, and we certainly operate at the bottom to mid end of the spectrum, we have no illusions regarding that just now. It's much better to give a young artist a week's studio time than give them $2,000 to cover a week's studio time because they don't necessarily know the best way to manage or administer that. Sure, yes, so agree. we're very much about delivering. We give all of our artists free access to photography. We can give them free access to videography. We give them free promotion, free plugging, free manufacture. They can't come to us and say, we've decided not to release our next LP on record. Instead, we'd like you to give us the £3,000. We'll say, that's not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. We're here to release it on record. Uh, Artists will get all the proceeds and all the income and all the profits from the commercial aspect of this, but we're not about delivering cash from the operation of the business to artists. We're about delivering function and service and value. And if we can buy that in bulk and pass it on to our artists such that they get a better deal because they can afford 10 days in the studio with us as opposed to five days if they did it themselves. This is the way to deliver it, we think. And so when I hear this, I think um, it's going to require, you're giving um, the artists an incredible leg up, an incredible... head start in that they get a record they the somebody's taking care of the pressing and the and the cost for the pressing and the studio time and all of this stuff and the photography they're really 30 40% ahead of of their peers but there's still a lot of the journey that they have to take on themselves i wonder and and i i experienced this early on in my label because i provided recording and mixing as well and does that um is there a risk of um, making the artist lazy because you're you're taking care of everything for them? Because I feel like when I listen to this model, I think this model, these artists would would be extremely successful if they put in the equal amount of effort or two times the effort that you put into their careers. But if somebody's booking studio time for them and taking care of everything for them, they might just sit back and 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 put their feet up thinking their label has everything under control. How do you motivate the artists to work as hard as you're working? Well, uh, first and foremost, you have to have your selection criterion down. Uh, We have a a very simple process that happens in LNFG. Uh, We will review any submissions we get. We obviously prefer when people recommend, if mm-hmm. artists recommend other artists to us or we bump into artists or we see people live. But through all of the process of us considering signing you, there are various stages that we will pay attention to. If we think you've sent a mail shot to us, which you've sent to 50 other labels, which contains the line, I think I'd be a really good fit for LNFG, that's going to go in the bin. (laughs) Because if you can't be arsed presenting your value to us on a one-to-one basis, why should we spend our time delivering one-to-one service to you? Mm. So our first checking stage, if you like, is we have to read about you or hear about you in a way which says, we think you get this. Mm -hmm. If we've established that we think you, you, you get it and we've established that we think your music has value, Uh, And we don't have a specific criterion of what that is. We have a selection team of about 10 people. And basically, we want one of those 10 people to be jumping up and down saying, I love this. Yeah. The other nine could hate it. 
but every one of us will back down to support the one who loves it. Wow. Because that's what matters. We don't require a 6-4 majority to release something. We require one person to say, I will kill you if you don't let me release this. <laughs> uh, and then at that point, we do a really simple thing. And we basically invite the band out for a pint. Hmm. And if... And this sounds clinical, and it's not quite as obvious as this, but if by the time we finished our pint, we're not suggesting having a second, they're not getting signed. <laughs> it sounds like a date. Uh, and we call this in LNFG the dick test. <laughs> and we need to spend an hour or two hours in your company, and if one of us gets a sense that actually you're a demotivated, yeah. self-interested, only in it for yourself, idiot, yeah. <laughs> then you're not getting the keys to the castle. Yeah, beautiful. So people have to be motivated. Uh, the interesting point is, outside of our label are many detractors, many people who would like to take pot shots at us, who tell us we don't know what we're doing. Uh, and they will also be whispering in the ears of our artists, saying yeah. to them, well, I've made certain mistakes, I want you to repeat those mistakes, so here's the advice I'm going to give you. <laughs> so we have to continually be, you know, battling objections because everyone wants fame, everyone wants success, everyone wants to be the biggest thing they can be. And when you've got Spotify saying you do it this way mm -hmm. and YouTube saying you do it that way mm -hmm. and artist promotion companies and pluggers and press officers and tour managers, all of whom only care about making money for themselves, when they're constantly telling the bands to do things their way, we have to have a pretty robust defence as to why people should do things our way. Mm -hmm. It's easier to have that robust defence when you're getting UK-wide radio play and UK-wide press coverage and US press coverage and album award nominations. But we haven't always had that. We've just been for five years building to a point that we get that. And now that we have it, we have to build to the point that we have the same kudos and respect in Canada or the States or Australia, uh, but it's a small building process. Right. You just keep taking one step forward and dealing with the detractors. And as we get bigger, we get more detractors. Incredible. I mean, this is incredible. I, I feel like we, we're going to need to do another episode with you because this is really pretty groundbreaking. I haven't really heard of a model this way, or more so, I haven't really heard of a mindset this way. I mean, it's 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 really, really incredible. What like what advice do you have for labels who are toying with this idea of, of a membership or subscription? I didn't know you were so explicit with this um you know, this charitable model and this charitable mindset. In fact, I'm really, I'm so taken by it. I, I kind of think that you should, you know, write a manual and sell a franchise, you know, like last night from Toronto or something, because it's really, it's a very, well, we're very... three years ahead of you and behind you in that regard. We had already <laughs> set up last night from Calgary. Oh! <laughs> but it didn't get off the ground. Okay, well, that, uh, yeah. And it didn't get off the ground because the people who were looking to do it, A, were not the same mindset as the people in Scotland because sure. it was someone else's idea, and B, were terrified of the shadow we were casting mm. because they were about to embark upon their first record as we were embarking upon our 30th. Sure. And rather than them thinking, we've just got to do one record, they were thinking... Jesus, we've got to do 30 records. Yeah, right, right. And, and what that highlighted to me is you're going to be very lucky if you meet one or two people with the same work ethic as you. Yeah. And if we do that, then great. But it will be much easier to employ people who have a passion for the business. So our ambitions would be to grow the parent company to a size that we could have satellite operations, but those satellite operations would be paid. Yeah. 
You know, the people who work for Gap are loyal to Gap so long as Gap is paying them a salary and they're True. getting good benefits. Yeah. Well, that's all we need to do. Uh, so the idea of a manual and a franchise, we did think about it, mm. but we really believe that for this company to grow, then the five people who are the directors of the business and the 15 other people who are volunteers in the business, we need to be the 20 people driving the bus. Yeah. And over time, hopefully international bodies will become involved and become part of that core 20. But if I tomorrow published a mandate on how to release last night from Toronto, 99 times out of 100, the person setting it up would get it wrong. Yeah, because I get they're it. not made of the same stuff. I get it. So, what advice do I you guess, have then? Because there's a lot of labels that I know, and people who are wanting to start a label, and they're wanting to do it different because there's it's following the exact same model of the labels that they admire or the labels of the past may not work. It likely won't work. So, a lot of people want to be innovative, and this might interest them. Well, they've got to decide what it is they want to do. <clears throat> Granted, I've been running a record company for five years. I've been running a business for 30 years. Okay. So the the knowledge that I have in business and the ethics and values that I've built up over my career are what have stood me in good stead in LNFG. LNFG was set up to be a non-profit. It was set up to put the artists first. If you're currently running a 50-50 indie where you're paying for recordings but charging them back to the artist and paying for manufacturing but charging it back to the artist. And I do not condemn that behavior at all. Mm -hmm. It's the lifeblood of the industry. And a 50-50 split is still 10 times better than you'd get from yeah, a major. that's right. But if, but if you are doing this, you've got to ask yourself, how am I going to sell this to someone to make them want to buy into this when the person buying into it is basically giving me half the money? Because mm. you can't see, you can't appeal to the charitable element if you're not being charitable. Yeah. Right. So you have to work out what it is you're trying to do. And I think what we need as an industry is we need from all aspects of the independent industry, we need people to start having sensible, balanced, collective views. We need to stop, you know, doffing our cap to Spotify and Apple Music and Google Play. Mm. Yes, we recognise our artists need to have their music in those platforms just on the off chance it might break. Yeah. But can we not every single time we post a link to Spotify just universally be saying, if you love music, buy the record. If you hate music, listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> Why are we afraid to turn around and say this isn't a worthwhile model of, of streaming for independent artists? Why, as an industry, do we allow concert promoters to rip off support bands? Mm. why as an industry and here I'm going to be very controversial, do we stand back and applaud Bandcamp for taking 10 to 20% of an artist's revenue for giving them a shop front mm. you know we're in a situation just now that the world is saying hey let's wave a flag for Bandcamp and let's attack Spotify Bandcamp is a shop front, right. it's not it's not an ethical producer of music, it's a shop Sure. And it's a shop that's taken 20% of your money just so you can sell your goods. Any craft manufacturer in this world knows that you can get an Etsy shop, a Shopify shop, a big cartel shop that will take less than a percent of your income. Right. Sure. How have we got to a place where we are supporting flawed models rather than trying as a body to develop ethical ones? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I definitely, um, you know, Bandcamp has done a, a great job at, at once a month giving away their their share. And, and I can't, I don't know, 20% seems high for Bandcamp. I'm not sure that's true. It, it may it's be 10 to 20, depending on the units you're selling, the size of your business, the, I see. the value of I see. I see. So, so that's why I was saying 10 to 20. Yeah. And I'm not looking to single them out and say, hey, 10 to 20 is better than you'll get from Universal's record. 
Ford store, yes. or you'll get from HMV. But should we not be lobbying a company who are essentially doing nothing but providing a digital front for our shop, for our music, and say, mm-hmm. hey, isn't it about time you did a little more for the independent artists? Sure. Could we as a body collectively not be lobbying right. streaming sites? Can we not be lobbying Live Nation? The th- I think the thing that is killing the music industry across all sectors is the one company thinking, well, I've potentially got a big star in my hands. I don't want to fall out with Live Nation. I don't want to fall out with Spotify. I don't want to put pressure on Bandcamp. I'm just going to keep quiet Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and hope that I break. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone else who's struggling is weakened by that one person not standing united with them. We believe in LNFG, there is power in a union. And we show that by having standards and values that run across the label. If you're an artist on LNFG, you must uphold the same standards as the label. Mm. You can't be operating in a way that devalues your fellow artists. You can't be striking deals with concert promoters that undermines the deals they're trying to strike. And I think as an industry, we should be trying to do that. We should be finding like-minded labels and and finding universal agreements and finding a way of putting aside our own personal ambition in favour of collective enhancement. Well, you're right. And the the reason the the numbers are the way they are at streaming is because of the the collective agreement, you know, that that Universal and and, um, Sony and Warner have all, you know, uh, fought for and they represent, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the plays. But we're we're lumped in with that as as indies. That's definitely a problem. Of course we are. And and they're happy doing that because if you're getting 90 percent of the play, you don't care what artist is getting the play, yeah, because you're right. the rights holder of that music, and you're, you know, grabbing all the income. Yeah, I saw something the other week, which was uh, Pete Frampton complaining that his 350 million streams of "Baby I Love Your Way" had made him 1,700 pounds, and this was a damning indictment of Spotify. I felt like saying, no, Pete, it's a damning indictment of the record deal you signed. Yeah, that's right. Because your record company's probably made £100,000 off this. Yeah, that's right. And this is a, there's, there's so much misinformation flying about and so many people don't really understand the dynamics of what's happening. And I guess my advice to any label that's looking to make a change is make sure the change you're claiming to make you actually are Mm. you know withstand scrutiny allow yourself to be you know opened up and examined you can't say you're going to be an ethical practitioner without being an ethical practitioner Mm. you can't say you're not for profit without being not for profit uh Uh, i i think yeah go ahead I was just going to say, I think there's ways to collaborate, there's ways to operate. We've recently released a record in collaboration with Shelf Life in Oregon, uh, and we look to do more collaborations with other record labels around the world. Now, Shelf Life Hmm. are not a non-profit indie. We are a non-profit indie. But the band that we were working on was happy having two labels engaged. They were happy with both deals they struck, we weren't sitting sneering at the non-profit for their profit model, and they weren't unhappy partnering with a label with a different structure. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that a lot of us will just kind of give in and comply um, because we don't want to be the sacrifice. We don't want to sacrifice our record. So if I have my own record coming out next year, um, I don't, I've worked a lot on that. I have hopes and dreams for it. I don't want to sacrifice it for the greater good, you know. So I, I think it's. I think you've hit you've hit the nail on the head. Where it's. Um, I agree with what you're saying, and I think a lot of our listeners agree with what you're saying. And it would be great if there was a platform just for us. It'd be great if we could band together and and use our strength together. Um, but boy, it just is so hard to say. Okay, I'm going to use this record to make a stand, and possibly nobody's going to hear it. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, that's but that's tough. that's the difference that we have, and I recognise that I'm fortunate in having this position. When we started last night from Glasgow in February 2016, and we had no artists and no records and no money, and we said we are not going to deal with non-ethical promoters. We are not going to promote Spotify. We are not going to deal with radio paid pluggers. We are not going to pay for press. Nobody gave it to us. The first artist who signs for us, signs for us knowing the things we're not going to do, and he's delighted to have someone looking after him. Yeah, He's not got a trail of record labels looking to sign him. He's not sitting with five offers thinking, well, I like LNFG, but their ethics are a bit restrictive. Yeah. I'd much rather go with money bags XYZ. <laughs> that artist signs to us knowing what they're getting into. Sure, We're not asking him to change what he believes in. Artist number two comes along and is told what we believe in. If artist number two agrees with that and signs up for it and maintains it, then they too are already part of the beast. Interestingly, artist number two left the label a year later because they were thinking, this is limiting my potential. Hmm. They were wrong and history will have proven them wrong. But at the point it happened, they were thinking, I can do better if I deal with all these people that LNFG don't want to deal with. Right. You cut to a point now that BIS are on our label. Mm. And when you sign BIS and you say to them, here are all the things we don't want to do, BIS are saying, damned right, you don't want to do them. We did them first time around and it didn't do us a damned bit of good. Yeah, yes. Close Lobster signed to the band having been on fire in the 80s and they say, yeah, damned right, you're right, you shouldn't do those things. We did those things, it's wrong. Mm. We've got the Bluebells now signed to the label. We have a cross-section of older established acts that are coming back in, choosing to operate on our model because it's right, and we have young up-and-coming bands who don't know any different. It's pretty easy to instill a philosophy in someone who's not been prejudiced against it. At the outset, it's quite difficult to change your boats midstream, which is why I worry for a label who's saying we're going to operate a more ethical model if they haven't done it before. Yes, yes. Because it will take a lot of convincing in the merits of it. We've never made any money. Uh, I met with one of the founders of the Rough Trade Cartel about seven or eight months ago. <laughs> I explained our model to her and she was literally banging her head on the table saying, this is insane. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing this. Why are you doing this? <laughs> And I was explaining why we were doing it, and she could not comprehend from a from a very socialist cartel of rough trade in the eighties. She was struggling to understand why we don't own the rights to the music we release. Mm. Uh, it's it's yeah, that's incre- I mean, it's incredible. It, it really is interesting. I, I'm just like I, I'm half listening to you and half thinking about reevaluating things and and what I would do if I if I could start over. And it's very, it's just really interesting. I really do like the ethics behind it. I, I like the mentality, and and um, it's just something I've never really uh, come across. And I, I I commend you on it. I think you've created something really really interesting, and uh, I hope more labels. Um, take this path? Well, I don't know if I hope more labels do it. I quite like being <laughs> a big fish in a small pond. Uh, right. uh, I, and and I, I'm delighted to have competition, but what I don't want to have is a situation where lots of similar but slightly different models spring up and we all start being evaluated collectively. Good point. That's I, wise. I'm very keen for lots of people to become ethical and sign up to a code of conduct and sure. believe in certain values. That to me is much more important. I'm not sitting in my, you know, my home office thinking that Bella Union or Matador aren't good record labels because they're commercial. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm thinking they are. Sure. Uh, 
And they don't need to change because what they deliver for their artists, they're happy with. Their artists are happy with. Yeah, right, right, There's right. There's room right. for every type of model That's that a good this point. industry can find. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, and I don't mean this to sound self-aggrandizing, but I don't think there are hundreds of people willing to give up 60 hours a week for no money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for Absolute taking the time pleasure. to do this. This is incredible. I, I have so many questions that we we I had to skip over just because this is um, this has been really enlightening and and um, such a uh, such an honor to to chat with you. It's an absolute pleasure, and we can do another one. Apologies, I'm quite verbose. No, you're being... Uh, and listen, I, I, I think, don't struggle to convey what, I'm trying, what uh, I want to get across. I, I, uh, I need to have somebody transcribe this interview because there's some excellent quotes I need to pull out of this. Thank you all for listening. I, I hope that you've got something from this episode. I hope that you pulled, um, you know, some of this advice or, or some of Ian's model of running his label. Maybe you don't adopt the whole thing for you, um, but maybe there's some principles in here that you can apply to how you run your label or how uh, you run yourself as a DIY artist. Um, uh, or if you're one of those people thinking about starting a record label, and I'm, I'm not kidding, every single day I get a message from somebody who's thinking about starting a label who has a question or um, you know uh, some sort of idea they want to share with me and you can email me at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com make sure you check out uh, lastnightfromglasgow.com and check out their releases and listen to some of their artists um, you can also go to our website for some free resources if you're one of those people thinking about starting a record label or if you're running a label and need some help um, please go to otherrecordlabels.com and check out what we have there for you Thanks for listening.